gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come to the dispatch.com to check out all our wares. Uh, we just passed uh, a major milestone for us 100,000 uh, uh, what we call free listers, people who are unpaid uh, but subscribers to our, our uh, free stuff. And we are coming up on 25,000 paid members, which is great. Um, Depends how you do the math a little bit, but either it's no matter how you do it, we're uh, four, five times more than what we expected to have in terms of paid members in the first year. And we're really grateful to everybody who's who's come on board. OK, so uh, getting back to the tradition of using the pandemic as an excuse to get people we wanted on for a very long time, finally on. Um, and this one is a pretty lame one, considering I could have just walked down the hall and slapped them in the back of the head and said, come on my podcast. Uh we have uh, my colleague at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, up until recently, my 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 immediate boss at the American Enterprise Institute, but then I was traded away for a pack of smokes to Yuval Levin's shop. Uh, Ryan Streeter, uh, Ryan, welcome to the uh, Remnant. Thanks for having me, Jonah. It's good to be with you, and greetings to your most loyal fan base. Um, because uh, the people who are listening, when they saw who was on today, they surely said Ryan who, but I love Jonah, so I'm listening anyway. So. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. And actually, if you had walked down the hall, that would be weird because then you'd be in my house. So we're yeah. Well, during the pandemic, that's true. And 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 I, I apologize to 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 listeners because this really should be done on video. Because one thing among the many things that are known about Ryan is that he um, has arguably the most important hair in public policy circles. <laughs> and um, every time I see him at, at work, I sometimes I, I feel like. Uh, Mugutu or Mobutu when he finally sees Blue Steel and Zoolander. It's just, uh, it's just stunning. Well, that's nice of you to say. Um, and he's a smart guy too. So, what is your actual title here? What do you run? What's your thing? Uh, I am the uh, director of domestic policy studies at AEI. So we have four four research divisions: foreign policy, economic policy, and uh, social, cultural, and constitutional studies, which you all runs. And then there's domestic, uh, which is what I'm overseeing. We're more like deans. Um, and, um, and we should tell people you, you, you spent a good deal of time working, uh, with Mike Pence back in the day, Mike Pence 1.0, we should call it Mike Pence 1.0. That's a good way of putting it. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, I don't know Mike Pence as well as some people in Washington, but I may know him longer. Um, Uh I, I worked on his very first failed congressional campaign when he was 29 and I was 19. It was a summer job that sort of just fell into my lap and we stayed in touch over the years. And when he ran for governor, he asked me to be his kind of policy architect, as he called it. And then first, I told him I'd give him his, uh, the first two years that he was governor, I said I'd serve as his policy advisor. So that was interesting. It was an interesting time. Um, and I'm sure the parties were just awesome. So Parties were great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the governor's mansion was was quite the place. <laughs> uh, He's a teetotaler, but but he did, did keep beer in the fridge <clears throat> for those oh, okay. of us who weren't. So, um, But the, 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 Nude water polo was really the highlight, but we don't, we don't, we don't need to get into all that. So, um, so, uh, you know, first of all, um, um, why don't we just get some rank punditry out of the way? Uh, what, you know, what do you expect to get in terms of domestic policy 
out of the Biden administration one way or the other? I mean, like, what are your hopes, your fears, good case, bad case, that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, assuming that the Republicans stay in control of the Senate, which I've thought all along is Joe Biden's desired outcome. It's probably what he's wanted as well. I don't think he wants to take over for Nancy Pelosi as the, you know, the superintendent of the, the various factions. So it's probably probably what he's actually secretly hoping for. Um, the uh, you know I, I would expect there to still be quite a few rhetorical nods to the left um, on things like climate change and, and some of the other domestic things that they they care about. But I I don't really expect over these next two years um, until we see what happens in twenty twenty two for there to be a whole lot of of um, of kind of big ideas. You know um, I'm a you know I'm a little more kind of optimistic about sort of Biden's foreign policy, which obviously isn't my my area, but I do think, you know, kind of reestablishing um, good relationship with our NATO allies and others is something that, you know, there's a lot, of, there, there's a lot that both left and right can work on together there. I think when it comes to domestic policy, it's a, it's a more limited realm of things that we're going to be able to, to, to get done. Um, but, you know, there, there are some areas that kind of non-sexy things like um, the cost of housing in our cities you know, um, the, 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 um, the unaffordability crisis in a lot of places in America where there's some things that, that we can probably work on together. There's some things that I think Biden has a history of caring about that, that some of us who also have some good ideas at a place like AI can, can work together on, but it's going to be, it's going to be more kind of on those administrative front, um, issues. I don't really expect a whole lot legislatively. Yeah. So, I mean, we've, we've talked about this a bit and this is sort of an, a growing obsession of mine on, on this podcast is, um, the, uh, the plight of cities, the role of cities, how we've, how, you know, both politically and policy wise, right? Because where there are policy screw ups, that's where it creates political opportunities, right? And so you can, and, and the Republican abandonment of major metropolitan urban areas is not, it, to me, is just like one of the most glaring forms of malpractice that we've had. Um, um, and I know you spend a lot more time thinking about all this kind of stuff and particularly on the sort of the role of civil society thing. Um, where do you, you know, if, if you could wave your, if you could have three wishes, policy wishes that you could actually use to deal with urban policy, what would they be? Hmm. The, um, I, I think the, the, the main thing I would want to focus on is just restoring dynamism, you know, in general in America. I mean, I, it, it's like we're not allowed in some quarters of conservatism anymore to talk about dynamism. We're supposed to care about workers and worker rights and making uh, pro-worker conservatism sort of, in, in my view, is about making work suck less. Um, right. uh, you know, it's not a very aspirational kind of goal. Um, our cities are really important drivers of dynamism. And I think, you know, so I, what I would want to see is kind of a city by city, state by state effort to make it a lot easier for people to move into dynamic places and participate in that economy. So, you know, a lot of people who would <clears throat> otherwise move into a place that's growing, that's dynamic, can't do it because they can't afford, they can't afford to. <clears throat> and so there are some things you can do to address the housing crisis that I think, you know, I think actually right, right and left can work on. We've made a lot of progress on that issue. You know, when I first started cutting my teeth in urban policy like 20 years ago, these debates were all about um, housing subsidies, right? That was the, mm. the main way to address housing unaffordability was what, what's the right 
federal subsidy that we can can deploy. But now you see not just on on uh, you know free market right leaning economists, but also people on the left, you know, recognizing the role that land use policy, that nimbyism, that all these things actually have done. And it's the worst in the most progressive places. I mean, it, it's the it's not not just places that are run by Democrats. They're really well run cities run by Democrats. It's an, it's an ideological thing, and these mm-hmm. bastions of progressivism are where uh, unaffordability is the worst. And then secondly, and and thirdly, I would just say um, kind of a, a, a national effort, state by state again, to just kind of unclog the gears of dynamism for, for workers, for people to hop around from job to job. That's the way generally people move up in this world is, is kind of moving around. And we, we've made it a lot harder for workers to do that, especially low-income workers. They have to sign non-compete agreements. You know, you, you, mm-hmm. you, leave, you can't leave McDonald's to go to Burger King because you just signed a, a non-compete <laughs> Agreement. Does McDonald's really have non-compete agreements? Uh, I don't know if they they they, <laughs> they do anymore, but some some fast food places have started doing that. Wow, and, and other places that employ low-income workers, and it's just crazy. You know, you, you can't hop for that extra dollar an hour, you know, because you signed signed it away without even really realizing what you did. And then there's the whole cred- credentialing and licensing thing, you know, which mm-hmm. is a real a real problem. With you know, where you have to get permission from a state agency to work in a particular profession when it's just not necessary. Um, So there's been some consensus building on these issues now over the last 10 years. It's a lot different. The conversation about those issues I just mentioned is a lot different now than it was even, even 10 years ago. You have people on the right and the left that realize these are problems. Addressing them is is challenging, but certain mayors and certain governors are starting to. So I, I think, you know, it's like I said, this isn't really sexy stuff. It's not like kind of, um, kind of the, the, the national reforms of like the 1990s that we saw were kind of undoing great society mistakes with, with kind of massive, you know, federal overhauls like welfare reform or community policing or what have you. But it's, it really is kind of the, the, the big issue for that, uh, for why workers can't really kind of get ahead in some, in some of our best cities in America. So that's, you know, and, and there are things the federal government can do, I think, um, even though this is mostly a local and state thing. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, I mean, the more and more you think about it, the more, I mean, one of my favorite metaphors, I use it for all sorts of things, are about artificial reefs. I'm really fascinated by artificial reefs. And because I discovered 20 years ago that um, while I was shamelessly pimping for, uh, for big oil without getting paid for it um, and defending the oil industry, one of the things I discovered is, is that like oil rigs actually, um, and there's some great studies on this, they increase the total amount of biomass in wherever, not wherever they're built, any warm water place they're built and that kind of thing. Because what you get is ecosystems are mistake them essentially for rock or coral and they build around them. And then that attracts smaller fish to hide and lay eggs. And that attracts bigger fish to come in and blah, 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 blah. And so in the Gulf of Mexico, they think the biomass of fish stocks has increased massively because of the oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. And um, and my friend Ron Bailey was the one who, you know, f- told me about how there are these foundations that, you know, they want to do this in the Caribbean, not put oil rigs in, but you build these superstructures in basically desert floors in the Caribbean. Because if you go and swim around the Caribbean, a lot of it's just open sand, right? You put, you build sort of cinder block things and 10 years later, it's just teeming with fish and that's good for tourism. It's good for the, eco- you know, ecology, all kinds of cities are sort of like that, right? I mean, like cities are where you get economic ecosystems that flourish, that build on each other sort of dynamically. And we don't have, but the weird thing about it is is that like, for the most part, the economic and political policies that govern major cities want to like 
kill all the coral <laughs> <You> know, and, <laughs> and chase all the little fish out rather than attract them in. And it, it kind of drives me crazy, you know? Yeah, no, um, it's, a, it's a good, it, it's, I, I need to do a deeper dive into artificial reef uh, literature. I'm not, not, not as well versed there as you are, but no pun but that's intended. A, yeah, yeah. But that, that is a, no, no, that's a, that's actually a really, really good example of what I'm talking about. I mean, that the, the um, cities do that. I mean, you think back to, um, the 1990s when the prophets of the internet, you know, were talking about how one, we were going to live, they made two big mistakes, right? One, we were going to live these more decentralized lives. Cities don't really matter anymore because we can all be connected to each other. They, they, they made that, that prediction. And then also there was the, you know, open, transparent platform for democracy, you know, we'll have open dialogue and, right. you know, so we, we know that latter one, we all live in our digital bubbles, you know, that one's wrong. But the first one, you know, what happened over the next 25 years is actually people moved more, to cities, you know, there are more people that that live in large metro areas now than 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 back then. In some ways, the digital technologies made made that possible. People that have ideas, people that want um, to um, experience some adventure in their lives, they go to places with other people like that. It attracts, you know, like attracts like in this case. And the great thing about America is that even though there's been a huge mismanagement of some of our kind of bastions of progressivism in, in urban areas, places like San Francisco, et cetera, places in California. Um, this competitive federalism thing that makes America so interesting has really shows you kind of what cities people are kind of looking for, you know? And so Mm -hmm. the, the boom that's been happening in Austin for, for years, um, now you see it in Nashville, Denver, you know, these cities that, um, are attracting a lot of people with, um, with good ideas, with, with a lot of energy, willing to take some, some risks. They're leaving places like New York, leaving places like Los Angeles, they're leaving places like San Francisco, and they're going there in droves. I mean, there, there are more 25 to 35-year-olds living in the, the Austin metro area than the San Jose metro area, which mm-hmm. you know, encompasses a lot of Silicon Valley now, just to give you a sense of sort of the, the, the scale of what's going on. So these ecosystems are out there. Um, and they're, they're just not the ones we often see on the television shows or in the movies. You know, they're not, they're not, they're not movie set cities, really. Uh, they're yeah. these other places, but they're, they're vacuuming up people because they're getting a lot of those, those fundamentals, right. Or most of them anyway, they're, they're so, the, so they, it, the ecosystems are kind of always changing, I guess, sort of like the reefs, you know, no mm-hmm. one, you know, no one back in the early nineties would have predicted that Austin would be what it is today. Um, you know, or that Denver would bounce back the way that it has, or, you know, what, what, what have you, but, um, there's a lot you can learn you know, from, from studying the, the successful ecosystems for, for kind of guiding, um, urban reform ideas. Yeah. So, I mean, like one of the things that is that you do professionally and I do, um, amateurishly is talk a lot about civil society, right. And, uh, notions of community and the way, one of the annoying things about the way the right talks about community and civil society is as if the, the prototypical American, never mind you, or even the prototypical conservative or archetypal conservative, is um, you know that they they live in Bedford Falls, right? I mean, there's this idea that like 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 the Republican Party is this rural party when uh, just as a matter of math, it can't be purely a rural party because if, if only rural people voted, Republican Party would be a rump of a rump party, right? There are a lot of people who live in metro areas who vote Republican. Um, and I remember you came out with this big study, which I wanted to have you on for that back in the day about the, the civil society stuff and like the role of satisfaction people get in their lives with parks and, and all these kinds of things. Um, can you talk about like what we know about how civil, like one of the weird things, having grown up in New York City, people always ask, you know, what was it like to live in a city where you could go down to the village in high school? And my answer was, I never went to the village in high school. I lived on the Upper West Side, I went to school on the Upper East Side. 
going to the village was going to another country as far as I was concerned, you know, and I did it maybe twice a year. Um, the, there are in, sort of invisible small towns inside major urban areas and all that. And they, they, they form around parks and other local institutions. So what do we know about like, first of all, civil society in major urban areas? And second of all, what do we know about how civil society affects our overall satisfaction and that kind of thing? Yeah. The, um, <clears throat> the, role of kind of amenities and, and the stuff that makes a, <clears throat> a district a district is, um, is, is probably more important than we've researched or studied. And that's kind of emerged from some of the work that, that we've been doing. We've done these large national surveys and we ask people a whole bunch of questions. You know, we ask all the standard questions about, do you volunteer or are you lonely? There's kind of a loneliness scale you can build. And then also questions about kind of their community where they, where they live. And so we didn't go looking for this stuff. It's just kind of emerged, you know, mm-hmm. from our, from our work that we found that, you know, when people live within like five to 10 minutes, either a a short walk or a short drive from key things like your grocery store. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, we know that grocery stores raise property values, whether you live close to a Walmart grocery store or Whole Foods, you know, Um, we we, we know that. But when it comes to um, proximity to grocery stores, parks, libraries, Americans love libraries, it turns out in in the digital age, libraries are still really important, we found um, in, in terms of what people think makes a community successful. And we kind of created this index by people's proximity <clears throat> to core um, amenities and stuff and found that, you know, when you live in a well-balanced community where you're really close to the stuff where when you're not at work and you're not at home, where are you? You know, you're out in your community. When you have a lot of places you can be, you run into more people, you recognize more people, you generally rate your community a lot higher. You answer the binary trust question. You know, do you think people can be trusted or do you think you can't be too careful? It's a common survey question. Um, people that live in kind of well-balanced communities um, have higher levels of trust, and including in urban areas. When people live in in kind of rich districts, like you were describing, where you grew up, or I've always I've, we've always lived in cities. <clears throat> I have two college-age kids who've never had a backyard or garage. You know, they've always been been in cities, but we've yeah. always lived in really you know nice districts, very blue places. But um, progressives always seem to do neighborhoods better than conservatives. It seems, <laughs> and um, that's where we've we've chosen to live. And you you find you, you can kind of experience this on the ground. I mean, people just have you know higher higher levels of trust and and <clears throat> excuse me and familiarity. So um, so it's kind of the it's it's the, um, the the civil society effects of good districts of good neighborhoods um, are similar to what you see from kind of other mediating institutions. Um, actually, we're, we're actually my colleague Dan Cox and I are actually working on a book on this right now, and I. I kind of refer to the the neighborhood as the the forgotten mediating structure, you know, in the the, mm-hmm. the the famous to empower people book that Berger Newhouse did. They they focused on four mediating structures: families, religious congregations, charities, and neighborhoods. You know, and we've since they published that, we've done a ton of research. Your social science scientists and economists have done a lot of research on the first three. We know now a lot more about families and faith based organizations and charities and their their effect on communities and their effect on the people that 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 live in, in, and work and participate in those institutions. They haven't done as much work on neighborhoods, but we we're finding that some of the effects of, of good neighborhoods are, are similar to that. And when, if, if what you think about the, the social capital benefits of civil society being, you know, higher levels of trust, a willingness to engage in mutual assistance and helping other people out, you know, we're finding that when people live in well-balanced communities, um, they, they experience the same, same thing. So it's pretty interesting. And for those, you know, for, for people who, whether you live in a suburb or you live in a city or you live in a small town, um, you know, your experience kind of confirms that if you live in a place where you're close to a lot of these things where you see people, even if you don't know their last name and you might not even know their first name, but you see them over and again, um, you, you generally tend to have higher levels of trust, less suspicion, um, about what's going on in your neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, the, the being near 
supermarkets thing is interesting in terms of raising property values because um, I'm near a supermarket, I'm near a Safeway in DC. And um, my wife, who grew up working in supermarkets, because that was the family business, um, hates it with a blinding passion that cannot be expressed fully in words because it's so badly run. Because um, DC Safeways are so bad. Um, and uh, one of the great alternatives to having to go to like the local supermarket, which at least my local supermarket has a terrible butcher shop, is things like United Harvest. Let me talk to you about meat. You know what has two thumbs and likes meat? This guy. And if I could get another thumb, I would point at me word as well, because I like meat. I put, you can't spell meat without an M and an E, and that spells me. I like meat. Did you know that the best stuff isn't necessarily available at the grocery store? It's certainly not at my Safeway. But if you order meat online, you should know that some of those quote unquote boxes import their meat from overseas. And there, this is actually a really important point. Like uh, my wife, who's more of a stickler about some of these things than I am, but one of the things we both agree on is um, we will almost never, whether it's in or even in a really nice restaurant, we won't buy um, uh, Australian lamb chops. And I don't think it's because Australian lamb chops are necessarily bad. Um, it could be that they feed them something different. Like I'm not a huge grass fed beef guy, but it, it could be that, you know, the lamb chops taste great when you have them in Australia, but the process of getting them from Australia to the United States often means that they're frozen and unfrozen more than once. And they just, and that just makes them gamey. You can freeze almost anything once, but freezing it twice, um, messes up the internal tissues and all that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, so, uh, we started getting, uh, uh, meat from United Harvest. We got a great sampler pack from them when we found out that they were going to be doing uh, advertising on The Remnant. Uh, they're a brand new delivery company founded by ranchers. They exclusively provide the best cuts of American beef, including Wagyu, and their Wagyu is fantastic, um, and lamb. You know exactly where you're getting it. You sort of can see it in the, in the documentation. It's American-grown, American-shipped, um, and you can really taste the difference. It's, it, it's legitimately good stuff. Um, United Harvest works directly with North American family farms that would hold the highest standards of quality in animal care. Instead of an industrial factory, all of United Harvest's meat is processed in Oregon by an expert butcher. The end result is superior to what you get from the big supply chains and sold directly to you at a surprisingly good price. We're talking about premium cuts like ribeye steak, which is well-marbled and mouth-watering. New York strip, which is potato-fed, not corn, resulting in a richer and fuller flavor. Wagyu beef, Wagyu top sirloin steak, which is a versatile cut that's lean and flavorful. Um, lamb loin chops that are perfect for a holiday party. They're tender, packed with flavor, and quick to cook. Uh, true story, the other day, um, my daughter did really well on a test that we were really freaked out about. And she asked, we asked her what she wanted for dinner. And uh, she said one of her favorite, and she's named one of her favorite meals, which is Korean barbecue. Now we don't actually have the Korean setup and all that kind of stuff, but um, we have this great recipe for Korean barbecue where you use like, you know, Boston bib lettuce as the, the, the sort of taco shell kind of thing and sushi rice and we have a special marinade, whatever. And we used um, the steaks from, from United Harvest, and they worked out great. It's really, really good. The flavor is solid. It's out of this world. Um, the pre its premium quality is built into every step of United Harvest sustainable farming processes, 
which include no hormones, no GMOs, or unnecessary antibiotics. Since United Harvest farmers are right here in the U.S., there's no imported meat from halfway around the world, um, like some meat delivery companies use. Uh, just premium cuts of perfect meat delivered overnight. So here's what I want you to do. Go to United Harvest. That's United, like United States or United Federation of Planets um, or uh, United We Stand. Go to UnitedHarvest, H-A-R-V-E-S-T dot com, UnitedHarvest.com, and enter the promo code DINGO to get 20% off site-wide with your order of $50 or more. That's UnitedHarvest.com, promo code DINGO at checkout. If you value quality, flavor, and convenience, check out unitedharvest.com and be sure to use the promo code DINGO to save 20% off your order of $50 or more. We thank United Harvest for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant, and I really do recommend them. If you're the kind of person who particularly don't want to go to the store these days and you you want to get quality meat um, delivered to your home, it's so far, I haven't tried everything they've sent because they sent a bunch, but uh, so far, everything we've had has been good and we're pretty tough graders. All right, so like, like right, so I've been obsessing about this, um, this workers party thing. And I know you, we met, you mentioned it earlier and, and um, you have views on it. I, um, my basic take is I'm open to, good ideas, right? I mean, I, I don't have some profound ideological litmus test that says, um, you know, if you could show me a reasonable case why some intervention would work to achieve the outcomes that you want to achieve that I agree are good, then, you know, I'm open to it. But it seems to me that, that as so often is the case with these things, the politicians are starting from the assumption that they must do something for workers and they're going to figure out what that is later, if at all. Right. I mean, it's sort of like you hear Rubio, you hear cotton, you hear, um, Holly, and they start from the presumption that the market is wrong. The dynamism is wrong. Uh, Rubio is constantly dinging quote unquote market fundamentalists, um, uh, which is an interesting evolution for a tea party guy um and if you're going to start from the premise without formulating a policy you're going to start from the premise that the market fundamentals are wrong you are trying to prepare the battlefield for doing something that runs contrary to sort of market principles right you wouldn't you wouldn't be you know softening the targets of attacking market fundamentalists unless you were anticipating doing something that was not particularly market friendly um, do you have any sense of what these people actually really want to do? Is it all rhetoric? I mean, I, I need, I know I need to do more homework on this stuff, but I hear a lot of rhetoric about this and it, it tickles my spider sense, but I still don't know what the, the actual ideas are supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, there, I don't want to simplify this in, in a way that's unfair to the pro worker conservative crowd, but it's sort of a classic David Hume is ought problem that we're dealing with, with this, with this crowd right now that, We've noticed since 2016, and some of us, and I include myself in that before that, that, you know, that there is a, a certain kind of populism afoot in America in the post-Tea Party era, skepticism towards elites that, that has drawn people without college degrees, you know, 
ordinary heartlanders, you know, to the Republican Party, and we need to do something about that. So that these people showed up to vote for Trump and and did so enthusiastically now means we ought to um, embrace a bunch of policy ideas that they supposedly want. And that's that's the you know yes, it's true that this that, that's the is part. The, you know, right. the, the the voters came and voted, but the ought part um, you derive this from from what exactly? And that's, that's where I think there've been some mistakes. So I think there's been a, you know, the, the analysis has been right at times that, that there has been, um, a distrust, uh, of elites and in, in flyover country and all that stuff. That stuff's all right. I think, you know, I think we have survey research that shows that that's true, but it's a cultural thing. Um, you know, the, the, the working class, the, the, the Midwesterners, even with college degrees, you think, um, that the coastal elites have kind of left them behind or sneer, sneer at them. They dislike them for, for these reasons. Are they actually clamoring for industrial policy? Do they want the federal right. government to be supporting manufacturing? Um, do they want wage subsidies for workers so that people making $11 an hour can now make $13 an hour? Um, they want to bring back unions, um, trade protectionism, restrictive immigration. There's just not a lot of evidence that you know, even Trump's most ardent supporters and working class Trump supporters actually want those things. Yeah, no, you make a great point about this, right? About the, we've got the causation backwards. That they moved into the party, and like it'd be one thing if all these, if this entire cohort of people that you just described moved into the party because the Republican Party adopted those policies. But these people moved into the party without us adopting those, without it adopting those policies. And now the argument is we have to adopt those policies to attract these people who've already moved into the party, right? I mean, it's a weird... Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's you know, I try not to be like too personal about this, but having grown up in the Midwest and being sort of an outlier in my family, um, you know, where most of my relatives on both sides, you know, many of them didn't go to college, let alone get advanced degrees and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, having people who kind of come from the fancy school is trying to explain my relatives to me. It's also, yeah. it's also sometimes annoying. So there, there is this kind of this sense of, um, of just the, the facts on the ground that I've ex- even experienced don't seem to, to really match what it is. These, these folks are, are selling, whether it's the economic nationalists or the, I mean, there's these different kind of camps within what I call kind of pro worker conservatism, but the, there's, there's been a general analysis of dissatisfaction. That's right. But I think you could make the case that a pro dynamism agenda would appeal to working class middle Americans just like like anything else. I mean, when we when we ask people in our surveys, you know, whether they believe people um, can start a business and, and be successful in America, working class Trump supporters still a majority of them say yes. They're they're above the national average. Um, they when you ask them if they're living the American dream, they say you know about seventy percent say they're either on their way to the American dream or they've already achieved it. And that's mm-hmm. basically in line with the with the national average. Any any question that you ask about uh, optimism, about their views of the future, um, they don't seem to be um, despairing about the economy that they're living in. That, that we keep we keep beating them over the head, saying, you know, um, you've been forgotten. Um, your your wages are stagnating. We need this, these these heavy handed sort of federal solutions that honestly probably sound alien to to these people but when you ask them about cultural stuff you know like do they believe liberals are running the, the country um is politics a zero-sum game we ask a ton of things where it's it's clear that trump supporters are way off the charts on this stuff and mm-hmm. and and even more so if they have a college degree like the, the the people that have kind of responded to trump's um messaging on anti-elitism however he does it owning the libs etc it's it's the college educated trump voters that are the most animated so so even the 
the working class people who are more an, animated about this stuff than kind of the average person, uh, they're not as much as, as the college educated folks. So there's, there's really this, this whole idea that, that there's something special about working uh, class angst and anxiety that we need to, to respond to. I think it's just a little overblown. And, and certainly these policy ideas aren't, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm not a fan because I think they'd be bad for the economy. I also think they'd be bad for the workers that we're supposedly trying to help. Yeah, well, that's that's always been part of my gripe about Trump, and I am trying to wean myself about talking about Trump because he's going away, and and we all need to like deal with reality as it comes in. But um, this this argument that you know he was there for the forgotten man and all of that. You look at his actual policy agenda, and you know, the only one that comes really close, I mean, other than like just farm subsidies for farmers that he screwed with trade stuff, the, the only one that comes kind of close to actually being a, I'm doing this for you thing was his protectionism, which I think we both agree was not actually helpful for those people, but it felt to those people like it was helpful to those people, which is to say in a lot of ways, trade policy is one of these weird policy things that arouses passion almost because it's a culture war issue of a sort, right? It's sort of, an, I mean, it's not xenophobia per se, although there's xenophobes and all that kind of stuff, you know, in the argument, but it's this, it's, it, it, it pings a part of the brain that is not about strictly speaking economics. And, um, you know, you read Peter Navarro's stuff and you realize that this is, uh, this is a lot of numbers and exclamation points. He uses a lot of exclamation points. I don't know if you know that um, <laughs> in his writing. And uh, Williamson once counted it up and it was like, you know, 800 exclamation points in his book. But uh, it's, you know, it's sort of like Herbert Marcuse used to do that multi-syllabic, you know, you know, uh, transgressive intolerance of the tripartite, blah, blah, blah. And it was all a con. It was all a way to sort of convince people there was much more there there. It seems to me that the trade stuff appeals to workers because workers have decided, or a lot of workers have decided as a cultural issue that the reason why there are transformations in their businesses and their way of life are due to trade. When in reality, we know that automation and lots of other things are really around it. But on every other issue, Trump, Trump's policy agenda was a standard sort of Paul Ryan um Mitch McConnell Federalist Society kind of policy Larry Larry friggin Kudlow is the economic advisor and I, like I love Larry personally but like like and I, so I don't understand how given the policy agenda they had and the attraction that those voters had and went to those rallies and all that kind of stuff how someone like Rubio or Hawley or Cotton or Cruz even can look at that and say, ah, it must have been the pro worker policy because I did. There were there. Were, it, that's not what it was. Mm -hmm. No, you're, I, I agree with you. I mean, the 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 very fact that he governed with a, a record of successes, like you said, would would be more kind of what these guys would say align with market the market fundamentalists who supposedly have been run, running the Republican Party, which was news to me. Um, but the the establishmentarian kind of Republican sort of policy agenda is, is where he's been successful. And yet his loyal base of supporters stayed with him, which is just, you know, it's evidence that they're, they're with him, not for those things. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're with him for these, these cultural reasons. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I, I was, 
I got a taste of this when I was back in, in Indiana with Pence and probably was able to appreciate things I wouldn't have been able to had I not spent some time on the ground there. When I would go to the VFW post with him, you know, in 2012 and stand in the hallway, you know, in the aisles talking with people afterwards and really picked up on this kind of, you know, these red meat Republican voters who would be the, the, the main constituents of Mike Pence's base. They, they were not just angry at Washington, D.C. anymore. They were angry at Wall Street as well. Like, they, mm-hmm. you know, it was big government and big business that was kind of screwing them over. And it was, again, it, it, was, it wasn't uh, as, a, an economic argument as much as it was this cultural divide argument that people would, would make. And it gave me, I mean, I can, I can prove, I guess, that I saw that. I mean, I wrote something in like the summer of 2015 in the Weekly Standard where I was like, I think there's something, go- you know, I think Trump's going to lose the nomination, but I thought he and Sanders were really tapping into something that was really raw that people were experiencing, but it was a cultural thing. I mean, it was, it was expressed in economic language, but people um, who feel disrespected, forgotten, and, and overlooked, they're really not worried about whether they're going to feed their family tomorrow or whether there's a, a, a new job that they can take if they lose their, their current one. Um, it's that the, the, the culture is essentially being dominated by people who really look down on me and and don't don't like who I am and find ways to express that 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 w- was was pretty apparent and I think that's you know that's what these Trump rallies have, have kind of all all been about so I just I think it's um, it's really hard to to make a case that the people that have been the most ardent um, supporters of Donald Trump are really clamoring for the kinds of things that the pro worker people are, are are putting putting forward and I agree yeah. with you on trade I mean the trade thing is just it's a it's a very complicated issue a lot of people have a hard time understanding exactly what the effects of tariffs are and all that stuff but it's it's you know it's never really been um, about those particulars for for people um, it's about the fact that big corporations would care so little about me that they would actually pay people in China to make stuff instead of my kid yeah I also think you know there's there's something that just happens when you start seeing made in China on products. You may not work in manufacturing. You may not have anything to do with like a company that lost jobs that were outsourced. But there is this this just sort of feeling like, why aren't we making this crap ourselves anymore? And it bothers some people. And it's, it's a natural human thing. I'm not trying to say, oh, you're, you know, an irrational goon for thinking this way. I have those feelings sometimes, you know, I mean, there are, you know, um, but I think that 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 gets to the this sort of c- cultural dynamic or anything else. I have a theory trying to figure out why these guys are doing this is that for a long time now we've seen the FDR coalition coming apart and the thing that is becoming clearer in hindsight um, is that Trump was accelerating that process and benefiting from that process but he was not causing that process we've seen the white working class moving out of the Democratic Party for a long time Nixon made serious inroads to the sort of the union vote. I mean, it's, it's, it's a long time in coming, explains a lot of George W. Bush's politics, but, um, the, the weird thing is that, so we're getting the sort of core white working class voter from what's left of the white working class voters from the FDR coalition. And a lot of these guys now say, okay, we got these people coming from the FDR coalition. Um, it's sort of like when you know that you're relatives from Norway are coming and you think you have to put out the herring, right? They're like, <laughs> yeah. all right, let's put out the new deal. Let's, let's come up with some bunch of new dealy kind of stuff because that's what these people like. Right. And it's like, no, they wouldn't be coming in if they were coming for the new deal stuff. They're coming in for something else. And, um, anyway, I do yeah. want to ask you though, <laughs> um, uh, 
because you spend a lot of time with Pence. You've told me stories about spending time with Pence and all that. Uh, this is a pretty pundity question. Um, uh, if you had to guess, right? So get it, it gets to this cultural point. All these people think that they can hold on to the Trump coalition with policy stuff. Um, my view is, is that no one goes to those rallies for the policy stuff. Do you think Mike Pence can hold the crowds that like the, the sort of WWE kind of crowds that go to a Trump rally? You think Pence could get anything like that kind of turnout for his own rallies if he ran on his own? I don't know if anybody can really, you know, um, Trump is just this unique and distinct person and, and, um, you know, has, I, in my view, and I know yours, it's really made um, our political life worse in this country in, 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 by, by lowering so many bars. And I just don't know that anybody else can, can really do that the same way. Um, I mean, as you know, um, uh, Pence likes to, to give the applause line speeches. Um, he is much more comfortable in the kind of conventional sort of Republican sort of framework, which is why it's been interesting to watch him try to twist into pretzels on a whole range of these these policy issues. And I think, um, I, I think the crowds, you know, they're, they're not there for the policy, um, mm-hmm. you know, and they're, they're not, they're not there for the, uh, you know, we can, we can lay out the herring for them or not. And, uh, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. They come, they come for the theatrics, they come for the other stuff. So I don't, I don't know who can actually, who can actually do that. I mean, I, I would say that, I mean, kind of getting back to an earlier point you're making, I mean, I, I, I mean, I've always been more of an expansionist rather than a doubling down kind of person. You know, I don't think learning the lessons of the white working class kind of migrating to um, the Republican Party or becoming, you know, a base that, that we should sort of exploit was like the right thing to do, you know, um, over the last five, 10 years. I've always thought you should try to be more expansive. The retreat from cities, all that stuff that you and I have both written about, I think is a is a problem. And so I think, you know, the... The big challenge for anyone um, uh, coming down the road next is how to how to do that in this era. When you know the the basic um, view is that if you're going to run as a Republican, you really need to double down on the kind of white working class, the rural voter, the people in the exurbs, and and all of that. And sort of forget um, the people closer in. I mean, I thought like after the 2018 midterms, I thought Dan Balls did a really nice nice service by he wrote this post piece where he kind of analyzed the suburban voters, you know, because suburban voters mattered so much in the 2018 midterms, you know, for Democrats. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he looked at kind of where Republicans did well and where Democrats did well. And, you know, it was like the denser the suburb or the closer to the core city, that's where the Democrats did well. And the farther out you get, you know, that's where the, the Republicans seem to, to, to do well. I, I think the, the goal would be to kind of move into some of those areas w- that, that the Democrats have been performing in well and, and find a strategy there as opposed to kind of retreating into the, into the excerpts, which seems to just be and has been kind of the prevailing view of kind of Republican strategists. And it seems like a really losing um, proposition to, to me. And when you think just looking at, at, at cities as kind of a proxy for, for this issue, when you take like the 20 largest cities today and you look at them 20 years ago, it's like 10 of them had Republican mayors and yeah. 10 of them had Democratic mayors. And today it's like 16 and three with one independent in there. Um, and that that sort of is a is an interesting sort of data point on this this larger this larger issue. So doubling down, you know, on the white working class voter requires a certain set of skills. And um, uh, and I'm not really sure any of the four, you know, the, the people that are at the forefront of, of people's minds is who's going to run next, have the ability to do that very well. Yeah. I mean, I, the one thing I will say about Mike Pence and all this is that he is very clean shaven, which reminds me of 
Harry's Shave. So let me talk to you about that for a minute. Our old friends at Harry's have come out with something new. Their sharpest blades ever. And unlike some other razor companies, uh, we won't tell you who we're subtweeting here, but you know who they are. They're not charging you more for their product improvements. Harry's new sharper blades are still as low as $2 each. $2. I, I got to say, I, I, I love Harry's. I look forward to the day when I can like scrape this stuff off my face and maybe off my head, and I will use a, I will use a Harry's blade to do it. Um, uh, although every time I get one, my wife steals the Harry's blades from me, but uh, be that as it may. Um, but they really are a quality product. They're a disruptor. Um, they're part of that dynamism that Americans are in favor of, but you won't hear from a lot of people these days because um, they kind of blew up the, the shaving industry, and I'm a big fan. So you can find Harry's new sharper blades in big box, drug, and grocery stores near you. But if you like to shop online, new U.S. customers can redeem a trial offer of Harry's new sharper blades by just going to harrys.com slash dingo. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S, no apostrophe needed, dot com slash dingo. These new blades are so sharp that in a study with guys shaving four times a week, the guys reported that with Harry's new blades, their eighth shave was as smooth as their first. So how does Harry's deliver such quality at such a low price? Harry's owns a German factory. Sure, the Germans have made mistakes. That's why pencils have erasers. But when it comes to razors, they're top notch. Harry's owns a German factory that's been honing razor blades for 100 years. They source their steel from Sweden and own the entire manufacturing process from R&D to the factory floor. This allows them to keep prices low and confidently stand by a 100% quality guarantee on harrys.com. So Harry's is available wherever you shop, and you can get Harry's sharpest blades ever at all those big box stores and drug stores and grocery stores near you. But if you want to help this show, if you want to order from the convenience of your own home during a pandemic, then you can go to Harry's dot com slash dingo and you can get a, a harry's trial set just go to harrys.com slash dingo you'll get a five blade razor featuring their new sharper blades a weighted handle foaming shave gel with aloe and a travel cover to protect your blade when you're on the go it's an important lesson i learned when i was in prison just go to harrys.com slash dingo and redeem your trial offer today we thank Harry's for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. So uh, I think it's okay for me to tell this story. Um, my wife was uh, doing some work. Remember Spencer Abraham? Spencer, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. Michigan, Michigan guy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I believe he's of Lebanese extraction. And uh, uh, my wife tells a story about how um, he went to go meet with some you know, horsey set donor wasp types. And I could be completely ruining the story, but the, uh, they meet with these people and he comes out and he says something along the lines of, my God, those people were so clean shaven. I've had to shave twice today. <laughs> um, um, anyway, so, uh, the things you have to do to serve. Yeah. Um, my, uh, well, uh, my uh, my wife, having worked for a lot of politicians, has a lot of a lot of good stories. And I will say, 
having worked for Ben Wattenberg at AI 30 something years ago, um, uh, not all of the humiliations one endures in Washington have to do with working for politicians because I, I had put <laughs> that's, up that's with not, quite a lot, but that's, that's right. story. No, it's, I, uh, uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's actually, it's been one of the great things about doing policy work is having this chance to do forays in public service like this, because you seeing, seeing it from the inside and seeing how politicians work and act is, is, um, is, is really instructive. It actually helps inform your views on policy itself, like what's possible, how, you know, how politics yeah. actually affects the policymaking process. And so when you, when you don't have any time in, in that, you sometimes can be idealistic about what can be done, what can't be done, but it, it helps. And I think, I'm not sure if I'm the only person at AI might be who's worked at the federal, state and local level, you know, so just not by design, not by, I didn't try to, I just, I yeah. worked for Steve Goldsmith when he was the mayor of Indianapolis. I worked for George W. Bush when he was president and then Pence when he was, was governor. And every, every one of those experiences was, was super rewarding. But the one thing that was consistent throughout it was the, 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 the lessons you learn about the importance of character, about the importance of integrity in your elected officials. And I was fortunate enough to work for three people that, that held a high bar there. I mean, I can tell you some interesting stories about how Mike Pence set up his office as a place of, of integrity, which sound almost strange given the kind of White House that, that he now is, is, is operating in. But, um, we, you know, he, he, he would lay out on day one, you know, our, it's not your enemies who get you in trouble in politics, it's your friends, you know, mm -hmm. and we're going we're gonna to make sure that we're not walking up to a line that we don't want to cross. We're going to stop three feet in front of it. And that became, you know, and, and, and the George W. Bush White House was, you know, was really well known for this, right? That yeah. there was this kind of standard of integrity, everything from punctuality to the way that we deal with outside special interests and, you know, don't let them conflict with what the president's agenda is, which is laid out, which is written down, which we say we're going to follow. And I think that's what's made the current political environment just so crazy for, for me is having been in this, this place where, you know, it's just not true that all politicians are crooks. Um, it's just not right. true that all politicians are self-dealing. We have a lot of really great people in, in public service. And it's just becoming less and less appealing for, for them to, to be involved these, these days. So, um, so I think, you know, I think for, for those of us who have served in these roles, it's important for us to, to talk about that and remind, especially younger people that have political aspirations, that that's what they sh should be shooting for instead of this, this new model, um, which seems to, this performative model, which has kind of taken over our, our, our politics for sure. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a really good point. I mean, I, I've never worked, um, in government, I mean, I had an internship in the in the city hall in Baltimore, which was eye opening. I will tell you, but that's a <laughs> sure. long time ago. Um, and uh, um, but you know, I'm surrounded by all sorts of people who work for politicians, and I'm surrounded by politicians. And I think you're right. I mean, like the the a lot of them aren't scummy, corrupt people. Um, there is there is a there is a selection bias problem I have. It's sort of like when all of those sex scandals burst out at Fox and other media places. And I was like, how did I not know about any of this? You know, I mean, I like gossip. No one thinks I'm a prude. I can tell a dirty joke. And yet I didn't like, I was completely blindsided by so much of it. And I think it's just that, you know, part of it is that people understood that, that I'm not the kind of person that you would tell those stories to because I wouldn't approve of those stories, right? I don't, I, I don't spend a lot of time with, with scummy, weird politicians because I don't like scummy, weird politicians, but, but they do exist. Um, you know, Matt Gates is a thing. And, um, 
but a lot of them are pretty decent guys and some of them are actually really smart a lot of them are kind of dumb though you have to admit i mean there is a kind of feral intelligence that politics breeds for more than an intellectual intelligence. Yeah, I, I think that's right. We don't have to name names, but it's true. I mean, I just, I, I, I assert it. And, yeah. and even people like Moynihan, you know, who's clearly one of the great intellectual politicians of the last 50, 100 years. For sure. You know, what's the old joke about Jews is they live like Episcopalians, but vote like Puerto Ricans. Um, he kind of had a something similar going on where he was very intellectual when he came and had lunch at AI or wherever, but uh, he voted pretty strictly machine party hack. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of that going on. So anyway, we're, this is a, this is all a digression that we don't need to, to get, go too deep in the weeds on. Um, but uh, but you make a good point about how like actually emphasizing ethics is something I think that is com- completely thrown out the window in the Trump era, and I, I think and part of it is because our side believes all of the paranoid stuff we say about the other side. And so we're always assuming that they have no ethics and therefore we're suckers if we have ethics and each side gives themselves permission structure to throw out, what do you want to call them, norms or rules or customs or or ethics because they think the other side is already 10 steps ahead doing it. And that's how you end up living in, in subterranean ruins, drinking puddle water and, and rat meat, right? I mean, yeah, like, for sure, uh, for sure. How civilizations we, die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and, and we, we, we end up, you know, we're in this place right now where we're just putting way too much confidence in politics to solve, um, cultural problems and other things that politics wasn't really designed or government wasn't designed to, to fix. And that's, that's probably one of my biggest concerns, particularly on the right in America, really since the Tea Party era is kind of the nationalization of issues, um, using national politics as the place where we're supposed to mitigate some of life's most complicated uh, and challenging issues, the, the breakdown of communities and families and all this sort of thing that, that conservatives have had a long history of arguing for sort of non-political solutions to. And actually, Jonah, one thing I'll mention from our survey re- research, again, not something we went looking for, but popped out, which has been fascinating. When we ask all the kind of Bob Putnam-esque questions about volunteering, you know, do you volunteer at a church or a charity or a veterans group or sports club or whatever, and then we ask other questions about sociability, you know, like how many friends do you have? How regularly do you talk to them? And so, and so on. And we, cre- we create these scales, you know, of people's engagement, social and civic engagement. And then we also ask the battery of like loneliness questions, the UCLA loneliness index, which is like a, a battery of like 1920 questions where you try to gauge people's ice, uh, social isolation. We did this just because all this talk about the loneliness epidemic didn't seem to be rooted in, you know, a lot of very good data. And when you, you throw all that together and you look at how, you know, people buy their, their engagement kind of. Uh, flush out on, on questions like loneliness, I found that not surprisingly, people that actually do volunteer, the 40% or so of Americans that would say they're a part of some uh, uh, some sort of civil society organization of some kind, we give about 11 options for people to choose from, standard options. It's no surprise that people that are regularly involved in those groups are less lonely than the national average, right? You, sure. put, you, you plot them on the, the loneliness index and they're less lonely. Why? Well, it's obvious. They're involved in their community. There's only one form of volunteering that makes people lonelier that is associated with people being lonelier than the, the national average. And that's politics. People, people whose sole source of, of, uh, volunteering is political stuff, um, are lonelier than the national average. And I don't know if that's our politics is attracting lonely people or it's just hollowing yeah. out our souls, but when, you know, it's, it's really stark, it really, really shows up. So, and this is true of Republicans and Democrats. It doesn't matter what your party is. If you're, if your main outlet is politics, you're just an unhappy person. 
Um, and, and, and so for us to, um, sort of forget these, these lessons, um, and to, um, to think that our, that our politics is actually going to be the way we're going to mitigate some of these, these challenges that we're, we're facing is just, it's kind of a, a losing proposition from the start. And, and Republicans have kind of gone all in there, you know, and, and the, you know, and, and, and it, it's sort of dangerous when it transfers from just political activity into policy and agenda setting, because we now have a whole bunch of proposals on the right for national solutions, you know, to, 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 to problems, which will probably only make, make things worse. So I think there's just this, this hyper politicization of kind of our cultural life in, in America right now, which is kind of wreaking havoc on us. So it's time, you know, it's time to, to kind of relearn some of the lessons of, of culture change and movement making from the past that seem to have, have worked pretty well that we seem to have forgotten. So I have, I mean, and you've, I'm sure you've heard my shtick on this a million times. You know, I'm a jihadi for federalism. I want to push power down the most local level possible, yada, yada, yada. But I'm completely open to the criticism that it is very difficult to get politicians to let go of power. And so saying that politicians should do that, even whether you agree with me or not, is kind of, some people think it's just a dodge since it's not going to happen, right? What else, you know, what else is there to do if, if that's not going to happen? If we're not going to all of a sudden get a radical commitment to the ninth and 10th amendment or whatever, um, what else you got? Right. So like, and, and I'm, I, 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 I'm asking this legitimately and sincerely because I, I really need better answers. I have some ideas and I've gotten some answers, but let's assume that Washington is not going to devolve power, right? That, that, uh, that dream will, will die. Um, what are things given the existing federal structure that we've got, the, which does include still a certain amount of local autonomy at the state and federal and in you know, state and local level. It's not, not everything in our politics now is run by Washington. Um, what are things that are concrete policy, uh, approaches that, could boot, sort of build those artificial wreaths at the local level? What are those things that the federal government could do that actually strengthened and helped civil society at the local level? Is it just grants to certain kinds of organizations? Is it what, what is there anything that they can do? Yeah. Well, unlike you, I'm, uh, you know, throughout my entire professional life, been a devoted federalist and believe in the, the importance of sovereignty at the local level, all the way down to the community level. Um, but yeah, I've never wanted to be so idealistic about this to, um, to, to further create and, and add to problems that, that sometimes that generates, right? I mean, there, there is a problem that we have when, um, whether it's in our healthcare marketplaces or housing policy and the like, when, when localities kind of run, run their own show. And, um, so I think we, we do need to be able to think creatively about this. And I think that, um, and, and I think that, you know, federalists like ourselves, conservatives who, who've cared about this for a long time should be open to new policy ideas at the federal level that um, might at first sound um, kind of unorthodox, but when you think about them, might, might actually work. So for instance, um, there was this, this housing rule that the Trump administration, the Ben Carson's HUD, the, the invisible forgotten member of Trump's cabinet was toiling away over there on this, this rule to change the Obama era uh, fair housing um, mm-hmm. regulation. And they were actually making progress. I mean, some of our scholars commented on it. It was basically trying to take um, a, a federal 
rule that had been, I think, very poorly designed and, and even some, some bad intent in the Obama years and change it into a way that HUD would say, hey, look, if you're, if you're going to make housing more expensive at the local level, you'll just get fewer HUD funds. Um, you know, if you're taking efforts at the urban level to relax zoning policy, make it possible to build more housing to, to meet demand so that housing prices aren't so high, then we'll develop a formula that HUD would administer when it comes to federal funds. So if, if you're if you're going to create more problems uh, of unaffordability, then you kind of have to bear the responsibility for that. And that that actually was kind of an interesting exercise, and it, I thought it was going pretty well. And then Trump saw it was in the summer when he had his whole like turn to the suburbs, you know, yeah. suburban housewives of America that he was coming to to save. <laughs> and they <laughs> and all of a sudden he saw this this was the the rule that was going to allow you know um, slum lords to move into suburbs and all that crazy stuff that he was saying. So they pulled it. Um, but that, that's an example of a federal effort that I think was, was moving in the right direction, where if, if we're going to be sending federal resources to local levels, um, we ought to say, if, you, if those local levels are going to create problems that policy is going to have to fix elsewhere, then there should be some responsibility for that. And you could, you could do that by creating a, um, like a, a, a rating agency structure, a third party that would essentially rate the various land use policies in, in metro areas. And you could assign a, a calculation to that as to how it would affect federal funding. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't be heavy handed, but we do this in other areas. I mean, we, we, have, we provide federal funding for um, childcare for lower income workers and, and states can rate the, the kind of the quality of that childcare facility by the services it offers and receive a certain amount of money in, in conjunction with that. So these are things that we've We've done elsewhere, and we could we could also do this when it comes to kind of um, sub baccalaureate post secondary training. You know, like workforce development programs from community colleges to certifications. We pro- provide a lot of federal money for this. It's very poorly designed, um, and we could we could do some reforms at the federal level that would create a little bit more um, local adaptability and promote entrepreneurship at the the local level in the same way that we've done with other things like like welfare reform in the past. So I think. I think there are definitely, if you're just going to be okay with the fact that the federal government is going to be spending this money and, right. and not try to reverse it, and that's what we did with welfare reform. We, were, we, didn't, we didn't get rid of welfare. We spent the exact same amount of money in the 1990s on low-income people, but we turned them into block grants to states instead of giving people cash right. and told them to get them to work. But we didn't, we didn't save any money. We spent the same. And if you're okay going down that road, there's, there's still some things you can do when it comes to training, like I said, when it comes to, to housing costs, like I said that I think would be a step in the right direction that federalists like us could embrace. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, so Ron Bailey did this long back during the height of the sort of the JD Vance phase of, of American politics, right. Where everyone was talking about what's going on in Appalachia and all that kind of stuff. And Ron is basically from that part of the world. He's from, if you say he's from West Virginia, he he'll, he'll fight you with sticks and rocks. He's from Western Virginia, um, and uh, which is a, a you know a crucial distinction. I mean, it's sort of like in the Balkans, the the differences between Serb and Croat is really important to people who are Serbs and Croats, and very few other people. So he's a Virginian. Anyway, he was he went back to his hometown. He wrote this really great piece for Reason about it, and one of his big findings was, was just that the the welfare system that we've got. You know, we all talk about how you know, you know, as a federalist, welfare is a state issue for the most part, you know, federal government gives money, but it's administered at the local level, yada, 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 yada. And one of the things he found is that it's very, very difficult. People get trapped where they are. And the, the, um, you know, you need to reach that tipping point place where you're 
if you join the job market, you actually make more money than you're getting in benefits. And, um, and the sort of the social safety web in some of these places, social safety net is kind of a web that sticks people. It seems to me that there's, I mean, I don't want to federalize everything, you know, by any stretch, but just imposing some efficiencies and clearing out some cobwebs would aid in mobility, which is, I think, a hugely important thing is, is sometimes you got to get people, I was talking to Kevin Williamson about this recently, you know, sometimes you just got to get people out of the dysfunctional communities that they're in and into functional communities. And, um, and that's a hard thing for the federal government to do on a piecemeal basis, but it can help set a climate for that kind of thing. Yeah. It's there. I think there's the formal social safety net and the informal social safety net in people's lives that prevents them from being able to move. And it's weird when you think just not that long ago, historically low income people move the most, right? If right. you're living in a stagnating dying place, you packed up and moved to this, went up North to the cities or, or whatever. Now, lower income people move the least in America. And I think, I think it is because their, their lives are intertwined with these, these kind of uh, social safety net programs where it's really hard. Even if you move from one county to another in a particular state, sometimes you have to go back to the county office and refill out the paperwork and all that, all that stuff. And so I think that's part of the reason people um, aren't mobile. But I also think, you know, I mean, mean, JD is someone who shined a lot of light on this. And if you've ever had any experience with kind of um, declining working class communities, you can kind of see, see this, this, this interdependence that people have um, on each other to do things that those of us who sort of took just the nuclear intact family growing up and the ones that we live in now for granted in terms of all the the benefits that come from that, you you don't realize when you live in a place where no one is living that way, um, you're relying on your mother to watch your kids when you go work the night shift or you're relying on your sister to pick your kid up from daycare because you have to be at your, your job. And, um, and you know, this, this accumulation of, of life decisions, which have made people's lives really, really challenging is, is sort of what is the the big problem now. I mean, I, you know, I, I grew up in a suburb of, of Indianapolis, but I spent like a summer making to make money for a, a overseas stint, which was putatively to explore graduate school, but it was really just an excuse to live in Europe for a year. I drove a, a truck for a summer. I, I got my CDL license, mm-hmm. drove a semi truck around the country, a moving company. And, you know, had to every city I went to worked with guys that, you know, carry furniture every day. And then the, the next summer was a dispatcher for a local moving company and managing these, these crews. And th- these would typically be what we would call kind of working class in, in many places, low income white, sometimes um, African American, some Hispanics. Um, and their lives were all kind of the, the same. I mean, I guess if you're, if you carry furniture for a living, I mean, no disrespect to, to, to movers, but if you're carrying furniture every day for a living, there's other things that you haven't been able to do you, mm-hmm. or you haven't been able to get a job. And, um, and I remember just getting to know these, these guys and it was kind of the JD Vance world that you, we've all kind of come to, to, to know about where, um, their, their lives were just, they, they were incredibly dysfunctional. Um, they, you know, they were interdependent on their, their family members to do sort of basic things that uh, are a lot easier for those of us who aren't living in that kind of community or situation to, to do. And the idea that they would pursue opportunity in some other city or, you know, take, take a risk to to go do something adventurous that would be, would would really kind of accentuate their upward mobility, uh, is just, it's unthinkable, you know? And, uh, and I thought, I thought that, uh, Chris Arnotti found his way to this in his book, Dignity. He's the, 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 he had this book that went came out like last year. It's kind of a mm. elegiac black and white photojournalist kind of his trip around America to hard hit communities. He's like this socialist banker, like this wall street guy, yeah, 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 you yeah. know, you know, that. um, but he, it, and, and so it's all narrative and it's, it's based on interviews, but it, towards the end of the book, he gets to this point where he asks someone who's talking about how their community is just terrible. You know, like everything's, you know, the jobs are all gone. Things are boarded up. It's shut down. Crimes rampant. Drug use is terrible. 
And he asked the question, well, if it's so bad, why, why are you still here? You know, why don't you leave? And the answer that he says he repeatedly got was people like, I can't. I mean, I, I mean, I have to take care of my ailing mom or I need yeah. my sister to watch my kids. I can't. I mean, I, I literally can't change my situation because the informal safety net is how I get by. Um, and um, and that's, you know, that's a that's a really thorny issue that's that's affecting um, a lot of the heartland right now that no industrial policy or wage subsidy program or anything is, is going to, to fix. And so we shouldn't try to kid ourselves into believing that those policies are, are actually going to do that. Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, again, I have a different background than people who move furniture for a living, but I got people in my extended family who are the type of people who move furniture for a living. And, um, but even in my own experience, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to move to Washington was I needed to get out of New York because New York was the place where I had acquired a lot of bad habits. And, um, and, you know, and I've talked about, you know, my brother who, who ultimately died from his addictions when, you know, one of the things we really, really, really wanted him to do was move, just get out of New York. We had all sorts of extended places, you know, fa- friends and family who give him a fresh start. But, you know, that's what they, one of the things, the first things they tell people who are in AA is don't go back to your old stuff. Right. And, um, and I'm not saying that everybody in that world is an addict or anything like that, but there are kinds of addiction and bad habits that aren't just about, um, drugs. It's about just bad habits. And one of the great things about moving is, is that you get to reinvent who you are a little bit and be like the person you want to be because no one's going to be around reminding you that this new person that you are is a hypocrite because they know what you used to be. And so I, it, it's, it's, it's very depressing to me about the, the low in, about low income people are the ones who move the least in this country because um, I mean, it's a chicken or the egg problem, but it's, it's, it's a really interesting and kind of sad problem that, that. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And I've, I mean, I've certainly been hyperactive in this front. I've moved more than probably as good for people. <laughs> my, my kids can't say where they're, where they're from, but to your, I guess it's my professional ADD or whatever, just, you know, it, I didn't plan this, but, you know, we've lived in a number of different cities, both here and overseas. And, um, and that experience of picking up and relocating and, as you said, reinventing yourself or just dealing with the kind of forced humility that comes with kind of showing up in a community that's different and you have to figure out how to get around and you have to meet people and you have to do the things that are required to acclimate yourself. Just the Um, process of making good first impressions is like changes your character. Yeah, exactly. And you have to, you have to have this, this certain adaptability kind of, um, you have to develop it or it's a, a really hard process. And, you know, there's a certain, I've almost gotten like the adrenaline rush off of it. It's kind of fun to pick up and move and go somewhere and, and, mm-hmm. and start over and all of that. Um, but when, when you've never had that experience and you don't know too many people or anybody in your community that really has had that experience who could guide you along the, the, that path or decide to, you know what, maybe I should pick up my tent posts here and go plant them somewhere else and try to try to do that. Um, it's, it's, it is a sad thing. I mean, it saddens me to think that we have people living in, in communities that really are in decline. And from my time in the Midwest, when I was advising Pence going to a lot of these places, which seem to be dying and not coming back, um, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a depression that you can kind of feel. I don't mean just depression in the clinical sense. It's just this, this sense of like no one's going anywhere in the community yeah. that, that really comes up in conversation with, conversations with people or principals of high schools who talk about the, the, the aimlessness of the students who are graduating and, and, and they don't have anywhere to go and they don't have any aspirations to go anywhere. Um, it's a, it's a troubling thing. I remember sitting in, um, in kind of a, a, a dying, you know, heartland town there in Indiana one time looking out the window and thinking, wow, if, if I were, 
my age and had never left this town, I would be looking out at a streetscape that was exactly the same as when I was in high school, but just worse. Like it's, yeah. you know, it, it, everything, nothing has changed, you know, in 30 years or so. And my, you know, everywhere I've moved has been a pretty dy- dynamic place. And so I've, I've learned that construction cranes are sort of a, that's, that's one of my indicators for like a, a boom town. You know, when you move into a place and you see lots of cranes, this sense that the, the community is changing, that it's growing, that it's building, that it's getting, getting better is something that I've almost come to take for granted in the places that I've lived. And when I um, have gone back into the heartland, I go to these places, I realize, wow, I mean, it, it's, you, you can't, it, you can't even really expect someone who's lived in, in a, in a dying, declining town for a long period of time to really aspire to any, anything else because they don't know anybody else who, who has. So, um, I think for, that presents a real challenge for, for governors. I'm a big fan of people running for, for governor, you know, as opposed for, uh, as opposed to to Congress. And I know a couple of people that, you know, are considering that right now. And I think there's a lot you can do to try to build a kind of a new regional strategy in the state that you hope to, to preside over because, you know, almost any, state has this problem where you've got your centers of economic activity, which are dynamic. Um, and then you have a lot of places in the hinterland, which are going in the opposite direction and you can't just write them off. Um, you can't just say they're, they're, they're going away. I mean, politically, at least you have to have some kind of answer for that. And, and there are some, you know, we tried this in Indiana. There's some other, um, people experimenting with sort of regional development strategies, you know, trying to connect smaller towns to, to hubs of, of growth in new ways and, and realigning the way that, that, Funding everything from infrastructure to other types of funding uh, supports that activity. Just to to try to, um, to to dial in some of these places that are in decline to places that that have more of a, a future. It's really hard, but yeah. um, but 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 creative policy entrepreneurs should be thinking in that space probably more than the the national kind of federal policy space right now. Also, I mean, I, I mean, I think declining dysfunctional communities um, deserve special attention because they're in special straits, but the 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 value of moving you can you know there new york city is a pretty vibrant city you know uh dallas is i was just there they're basically siphoning off all the stuff from california they're a vibrant city but you can still be in a dysfunctional small little community you know some little platoon of community in a vibrant otherwise vibrant place and it still makes sense for you to move right because just kicking habits getting uh, going off and reinventing yourself being entrepreneurial with yourself has its own rewards and it's not just about external circumstances and all of those are macro external circumstances. You know, sometimes just kicking habits is really important. And, you know, one habit that a lot of people need to kick is smoking cigarettes. And that's why I want to talk to you about Lucy. Okay. Quitting cigarettes is important. I think that's, that's agreed upon. Um, cigarettes are a terrible habit. If you're going to smoke real tobacco, you should smoke a pipe or a cigar if you don't want to smoke any of those things, which for health reasons certainly makes some sense, um, and you've already started and you got that, that, that Jones for that sweet, sweet nicotine, Lucy is the product for you. Lucy Nicotine is a company founded by Caltech scientists and former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative. Finally, tobacco alternatives that don't suck. Researched and developed for three years to be made for people, not patients, Lucy has created a nicotine gum with four milligrams, four sweet milligrams of nicotine that come in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate. Lucy also has a lozenge with four milligrams of nicotine in cherry ice flavor. Each and every flavor actually tastes great. I I warned people before, I was a skeptic of the pomegranate, but I finally tried it, and I gotta say, it's really not bad. 
and it's convenient and discreet. Products, these products can be enjoyed anywhere on flights, at work, on the go, or even in the gym. Um, I've, for various reasons, feel like I really need to cut down on my cigar smoking, and um, I don't think they're complicated reasons. Um, but uh, I've found that the, the the Lucy gum has really helped me in that regard. It kind of gets me over that writer's block hump that I want to light up a cigar for, and that's particularly important in cold weather. You know, um, I'm not allowed to smoke cigars in my house. I, I love my cigar shop, Signature Cigars on Wisconsin, but I feel like hanging out with a bunch of dudes smoking and coughing during a pandemic is not the greatest idea for me. Um, and, uh, and when it gets cold, it's difficult to find a place where you can smoke a cigar outside because it's cold. And so the nicotine gum really is coming in handy. It's 2020. You can get rid of your cigarettes. You can unplug your vape, throw out your dip and save your cigars for a special occasion by getting some Lucy nicotine gum or lozenges. This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month. It's so simple, and you don't have to leave your house because Lucy has delivery down. Remnant listeners can go to lucy.co, not .com. That's L-U-C-Y dot C-O, and use promo code DINGO to get 20% off all products, including gum or lozenges. That's lucy.co. C-O, promo code DINGO. Also, I have to give you the disclaimer. Warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco, and nicotine is an addictive chemical. So go to lucy.co, that's L-U-C-Y dot C-O, and be sure to use that promo code DINGO. All right, so, I mean, I you know, we... Uh, one of the reasons I want to have you on is that we were talking about, you know, the, this working part or workers party, you know, um, 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 this Arbite, Arbite Parte, um, and, uh, um, uh, which will be the avant-garde of the Volksgemeinschaft. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things like you've been, you know, we're, we're close to the same age. You've been more on the sort of, deeper in the wonky and the political weeds than I have. I've kind of stayed in my lane as a ink-stained wretch. But um, are you shocked at how quickly the so many people, I mean, we don't have to give, I don't know what the percentages are, but how quickly so many people who had been raised and steeped in sort of conservative dogma about free markets, dynamism, limited government, and all these kinds of things, that I mean, I, I always thought there was always a danger that you could lose that, but it was I thought it would be like a generational erosion, and it seemed to happen almost overnight. Um, that you know, whether they became Trumpy or not, there was just a whole bunch of people who gained traction really, really quickly by embracing what I think are BS ideas about libertarians running Washington and all this kind of stuff. Um, has it shocked you to see it? How yeah, fast it yeah. Is, you know? I've been I've been stunned by it. I mean, I I was always kind of a one foot in, one foot out of the Reformicon group, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of the the Reformicons or Reform conservatives are friends of yours and you know mine. And I was at some of those early meetings and stuff, and always had a, a sympathy with the idea that we should make sure that we're not just recycling Reaganism, you know, today, but be thinking about community problems, real challenges that that um, 
that the heartland is facing, that, that places that seem to be stagnating are dealing with and adapting policy accordingly. Um, but I never thought that we were going to run headlong into this kind of this era of nationalism and, and, and angst ridden populism the way that we have and trying to formulate a policy agenda that goes much farther than what the reformicons were, were doing. And I am shocked because it seemed like the, um, the, you know, the age of, of, um, kind of the late nineties and into the early two thousands, you know, during the Bush v. Gore election, um, there was a lot of talk back then about doing more than just market fundamentalism. That's why this whole like thing about market fundamentalism that the current pro worker crowd is saying just doesn't make any sense to me because yeah. <laughs> for those That's of us what who compassionate did, conservatism kind of thing. Yeah, was right. Too. And yeah. it wasn't it wasn't like George Bush can invented that. It was on the back of a whole decade of kind of Republican experimentation with things like civil society society solutions, you know, more than just markets. Um, the, the big reforms of the 90s from welfare reform to public housing reform to community policing to school choice and all that stuff that was was happening in the country was was based on this idea that that communities matter, that we need to um, situate responsibility locally. And um, because we can't just rely on markets to do it, we need communities to be healthy as well. Right. So that and and, and Bush was very self-aware uh, that and, and his advisors and his speechwriters were all very self-aware that they were trying to put forward a candidate who wasn't trying to be Ronald Reagan again, that wasn't just mm-hmm. trying to, 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 to do those sorts of things. And so it seemed to me in the early 2000s, even though 9-11 changed all these things and domestic policymaking kind of went in, in some different directions after that, it seemed to me like some of these questions were settled, um, you know, that, that uh, we always are going to have to have a balance between uh, a robust kind of embrace of free markets with um, an openness to certain corrections that we use public policy to kind of help out with where the markets aren't doing the job that we want them to. We do need to, we still need to, to em, embrace policy, but do it in a way that, that helps communities be strong. I, I really never thought after the, 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 Tea Party election in 2010, even though it seemed like, you know, we were watching Republicans kind of run to Washington to solve problems, you know, again, mm-hmm. that, that we would, we would end up so quickly where, where we've, where we've gotten. So I, I, I really think, you know, in, in that era, you know, the, the Tea Party kind of reaction to Obama, but then, you know, the, what, what happened during the, the Trump election where um, people got energized by this kind of, this, this sort of the, the anti-elitist populist rhetoric that it would actually get so many defenders um, on mm-hmm. the right, people trying to build essentially a public philosophy of Trumpism that seems to have some appeal. I mean, I, you know, I think you know them, I know them. It seems like there's a lot of young Hill staffers on the right. They're usually white male staffers yeah. um, that just seem really energized by this. And, and uh, um, you know, even though a lot of them went to good schools and, you know, were the presidents of their, their conservative clubs or Republican Party clubs, I'm just uh, amazed at sort of the historical illiteracy and even ignorance that seems to be abounding right now. This, this claim, of, this rewriting of sort of the market fundamentals dominance of, of policymaking is just not true. It's, it's yeah. certainly not, it, it just doesn't match with the actual historical sort of decisions and people that were involved in those decisions going back the last 25 years. And so there is, there is sort of just a kind of rewriting of the past, which um, doesn't make any sense. And I'm just surprised that it's, it's captivating so many people right now. And especially, and, and it's not just Hill staffers, but we actually have, you know, members of Congress and senators now that are wrapping their arms around this stuff, which is, which is, is, is to me really surprising and kind of disheartening. Yeah. I mean, I, we don't, I mean, we're, we're running along and all that, but uh, it is always dangerous to ascribe ideological movements to narrow or self-interested motives. Um, but there is, uh, but I think that kind of thing always plays part of a role. 
you know, and, and, but since it's bad form to talk about it, and it seems like you're accusing everybody of bad faith, it's very difficult to do. And so I'm not accusing everybody of bad faith, but, you know, going back to like, I mean, I, I want to get all geeky with sort of Mosca and Pareto and Michelle's elite theory stuff, but, you know, sometimes when you have one set of elites that wants to take over another set of institutions, the institutions controlled by another set of elites, you need to weaponize ideas that differentiate you from them. And this explains a big chunk of the, the, the sort of, uh, pre Goldwater splits in the GOP, you know, sort of the Taft versus Dewey wing kind of stuff. It explains a lot of academic politics and, um, and I think there were a bunch of people, I mean, if you read the flight 93 election piece by Michael Anton, you know, I mean, it's, it's not hard to figure out that he's talking about like Arthur Brooks with a skinny tie. Right. And it's not hard to figure out that he's um, casting aspersions at people in AI world and Washington world and all these kinds of stuff. And it's full of personal resentment. And, um, and you can read a lot of the stuff from the uh, initial attempts to create an ideological Trumpism as really sort of long subtweets of the people who were running the existing institutions. Um, and you get this a lot from, you know, writers at the Federalist and all these kinds of places. And, and so in one sense, I find it a little heartening <laughs> because really what they're just trying to do is weaponize an idea to go after people for, for less because this is an idea whose time has come and more because it's like, Rubio wants the, wants the nomination and he thinks that picking up this BS is the way you jockey to get the nomination. And it's not actually reading some groundswell movement out there, but, um, it's also just, it's depressing because, you know, it's, it's the kind of, you know, when I wrote my first book, my, one of the reasons I was so haughty about Anglo-American conservatism is that it was by my lights immune to the kind of nationalistic, fascistic, collectivist, corporatist, whatever labels you want to put on it, kind of thinking, because we had this dogmatic commitment to limited government and free markets and all that kind of stuff. And it turns out that we don't. <laughs> um, and uh, it's very depressing to me. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's depressing to, to me as well. And I, 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 some, I don't I, you've analyzed this better than I can do. I don't completely understand what's happened over the last 20, 20 years, but the, I, the idea that ideas still matter and that a commitment to a core set of principles that remain unchanging, um, regardless of the vicissitudes of the current day or the, or the future, um, is, is something that is, it's harder, it's harder to find that manifesting itself just in the, the individual platforms of people running for office anymore. It's, um, mm -hmm. there's, there's an, a, an attempt to, um, grab a hold of, certain ideological popularities of the moment. And right now we've been talking about that as the, the pro-worker set or, or, or what have you. I mean, it was no surprise that like the, the votes hadn't even been counted and, you know, people were publishing pieces or tweeting or making statements that, you know, we now have a multi-ethnic working class, you know, right. GOP. It was the, the people saying all that were the people who were already saying that, right. You know, right. Lead, lead, leading up to it. So it wasn't a surprise to see people talking that way, but it's, it's a very different, kind of electoral environment than even when I go back to the election I was talking about before in 2000, where I still have this book on my shelf where, you know, uh, George W. Bush gave speeches, you know, throughout the campaign and put out, um, fact sheets with those speeches and they were collated into a, a book that we all had. And, and it's very, you know, the principles were very clear what he was campaigning on. Um, it was, it was written down 
it actually served as a guide for for policymaking in the subsequent years. You know, when you'd be the president be preparing his budget, um, and the chief of staff, Andy Carter, someone would say, "Hey, what you know, what campaign promises or what what things did we say we we're going to do? We haven't done yet." And mm-hmm. you'd go back to that to that list of of, of policy proposals and look at the bullets that, that hadn't been in, included in something that he was going to say in the State of the Union or whatever. And there was just this kind of we just took it for granted that we were working for someone that had campaigned on principles that we could all identify with as conservatives that guided the campaign, um, that was not trying to adapt to new realities. It was, it was compassionate conservatism was an attempt to, to adapt, um, conservatism to certain, um, realities on the ground, but without really fundamentally changing any, any principles. And it's the rewriting of principles or the forgetting of them right now, um, in, in some ways that are very explicit, whether it's saying that, you know, small liberalism is, in fact, it was a failure all along, mm-hmm. um, um, misunderstanding what, um, what we even mean by markets and, and so forth, trying to rewrite that, which I find to be the most troubling right now, because it, it, it seems like at least within some subset of conservatives with quite a bit of, of influence right now, um, wanting to recalibrate the the principles without maybe even being explicit about what you're doing seems to be what's happening. And that's what I find to be uh, troubling right now. So for those of us who believe that principles endure, even as times change, just need to keep doing what we're doing and perhaps do it more loudly. Well, I can always get louder. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, 11, thanks so, Jonah. <laughs> Ryan, thanks so much for doing this and indulging me and uh, looking forward to seeing you in the office again at some point. Thanks, Jonah. All right, so uh, Ryan has left the studio or his living room, wherever he was recording that from. Um, and uh, I'm glad we could finally have him on. Um, I really do feel sorry for all of you who didn't get to see his hair because his hair is really, truly wonderful, even though he had it pulled back. Um, uh, I always feel like I'm Jodie Foster in contact when I finally see the aliens, when she finally sees the aliens and starts saying they should have sent a poet. Um, but, uh, and I hope people have enjoyed the, 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 the wading deep into wonkiness, um, which, you know, I'm glad to kind of get back to, um, we get such weird, weirdly diverse, I should put it this way. We get a lot of great feedback for the remnant. We also get a lot of weirdly diverse feedback for the remnant. It's amazing that some people love certain things and some people hate certain things, but they all claim that like the thing they love or the thing that they all claim that the thing they hate is a deviation from what they thought the remnant was about and um, vice versa. It's, it's just kind of weird and it's kind of nice. People have a sense of ownership of this, but I'm going to keep taking my own counsel, but how we um, do guests and stuff. I mean, I love recommendations. Um, I love topic suggestions. There are a bunch I still want to do. Um, but uh, you know, some people want a lot more punditry. Some people want no punditry at all. Some people want a lot more Trump. Some people want no Trump at all. Um, some people want me to sing and those people will be punished. Uh, but, uh, I'm, I'm glad that we can, you guys will indulge me from time to time and doing the wonky stuff or even having people on like Kevin Williamson, which some of you made some of you very mad and some of you very happy. Um, I guess I'm just, uh, uh, doing it my way. So anyway, um, but we, we really appreciate the positive feedback, even the, even the constructive criticism. And definitely the suggestions. We, we're going to have some really exciting stuff coming in the fall and, and into the new year. And we're so grateful for everybody's support. Um, and uh, beyond that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Sure.